Good morning, everyone. My wife and I had the delightful experience this past weekend of going to the uh, Showplace Cinemas East and seeing a Christian film titled, Do You Believe? Maybe you've seen it advertised. This is a Christian film, and we like to support Christian movie making. And the plot of this film is excellent, and it's all about the power of the cross. It is a perfect complement to where we've been living as a church the past few weeks. I want to mention it publicly because I think it would be a wonderful activity for your family sometime in the next couple of weeks, particularly to go with your children and, or your grandchildren and see this film, Do You Believe? Kind of interesting. You remember uh, Brian Bosworth, the Boz, played football at the University of Oklahoma years ago. He's kind of a wild child. Uh, he, he has been thoroughly converted, and he is one of the actors in this film. And Lee Majors, the old $6 million man, has also become a committed Christian in this season of his life, and he is one of the, the stars, and it is a very Christ-honoring, unashamedly, advancing the name of Jesus and the power of the cross to change lives. So I want to mention that because it just fits hand in glove with where we've been living the last few weeks in this series called Vantage Point, Seeing the Cross Through Different Eyes. Charles Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, tells of visiting a prison in San Jose dos Campos in Brazil, a city of 700,000. In the early 70s, the administration of this prison was turned over to two godly men who were determined to run this prison on Christian principles. Every prisoner was assigned another inmate to whom and for whom he was accountable. Every prisoner was required to attend chapel services and take a course on character development with the Bible as the textbook. Every prisoner was required to learn a trade and to make restitution to the victims of his crime. And after visiting the prison, Colson writes, I found the inmates smiling, even the convicted murderer who opened the gate to let me in. Wherever I went, I saw men at peace. I saw men working. I saw clean living areas. On the walls, there were Bible verses. It was an encouraging atmosphere he said. And listen to this. Over the next three decades, only 4% of those former inmates reoffended and were returned to prison. To give you an idea how that compares to the prison system in the United States, our rate of recidivism is steadily growing. In 1983, two-thirds of prisoners released would reoffend and be returned to prison. Today, over three-fourths of our former inmates reoffend and are reincarcerated. What is the explanation for this extreme discrepancy? Colson writes, I saw the answer when my inmate guide escorted me to a notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he said, this cell houses only a single inmate. As we reached the end of a long concrete corridor, he put the key in the lock, paused, and asked, are you sure you want to go in? Of course, I replied, I 
had seen solitary confinement cells before. Slowly he swung open the steel door and I saw the prisoner in that cell. It was a life-size carving of Jesus hanging on the cross. He's doing time for the rest of us, my guide said softly. The inmates in that prison were being radically changed by the power of the cross. Now, I saw this life-changing power of the cross a few years ago at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility near Terre Haute. I was on a Kairos team of 40 Christian men from our church, a few other congregations in the area. We were spending four days on the inside with an equal number of prisoners, and our mission was to make the love and grace of Jesus real to these men. And so we sat together with them, and we ate to them, with them at meal times. We sang together. We were inspired by the talks and the testimonies of the guys on our team who each either raised or gave $200 for the privilege of ministering to these offenders. And you could actually observe the changes in these inmates right before your eyes. We closed the week with a cross ceremony during which a wooden cross was placed around the necks of the inmates who wanted to make a commitment of their lives to Jesus. If they did not want to do it, if they were not ready for it, they just silently had to fold their arms across their chest. No pressure. But every single prisoner received a wooden cross that day. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross has the awesome power, not just to forgive our sins, but to transform our lives. And that's good news. Not just for the inmates in a prison in Brazil, South America, or Terre Haute, Indiana, but for all of us, our past sins can be forgiven, and by the power of the cross, our future sins can be overcome. Negative attitudes can be changed. Broken relationships can be healed. Destructive behavior can be eliminated. Damaging temptations can be resisted. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Well, this is week five of Vantage Point, and we've seen the cross through different eyes. Today, we're seeing the cross through the eyes of a few who were in the crowd at the crucifixion. Now, these were bystanders who had not identified themselves as believers in Jesus, and their lives were transformed by the cross of Christ. They didn't expect it, but it happened. Their lives would never be the same, and it can happen for every one of us, and my prayer is right now I'm talking to someone who will look back on this day as the day that Jesus began to do his good work in you well, let me introduce you to a few people in the crowd who were changed by the cross. And the first one is Simon the Cyrene. And he was changed from a casual observer to a devoted follower. Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, Cyrene is a large city in North Africa. At that time, it had a significant Jewish population. 
And Simon had traveled all this way to Jerusalem, 900 miles, over a month of travel time. It was a once-in-a-lifetime trip. He went to a lot of expense to participate in the Passover feast, but on Friday morning, while he was there in the city of Jerusalem, he got swept up in the pedestrian traffic. People were lining the streets to watch a march to execution, and Simon stopped to watch the grisly procession. Jesus of Nazareth was carrying his cross to Golgotha, but he was so exhausted from a series of illegal trials that lasted throughout the night, the physical abuse of the guards, the Roman scourging, that he stumbled under the weight of the cross and fell in front of Simon. Now, Roman soldiers had the authority to conscript any citizen to service, so they pulled Simon out of the crowd, and they forced him to help Jesus carry the cross. And Simon was probably embarrassed at first, and then humiliated, but he had no choice. Refusal of the gruesome mandate was not an option, so this unwelcome, undesired encounter with Jesus changed the life of Simon. He saw Jesus' face and his wounds up close and personal, and together they had picked up the same heavy load, and Jesus' blood was transferred from the cross to Simon's cheek and neck, and hands, and arms. And maybe Jesus looked into his eyes and uttered a weak thank you when they reached Golgotha. Whatever happened that day totally changed Simon from a casual observer to a devoted follower. How do we know that? Well, in the passage that I just read, Mark identified Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, if I were to introduce you to someone and say, this man is the father of Joe Blow, it would mean nothing to you if you didn't know Joe Blow. But if I were to say to you, this man is the father of Todd Bussey, that's all I'd need to say to you. You would immediately know who I'm talking about. Well, these two men... Alexander and Rufus were well-known in the early church. Everybody knew whom Mark was talking about when he identified Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's kind of like how I was recognized last Friday when I spoke at Heritage Hills High School over in Lincoln City. I was introduced as the father of Kyle Eidelman. Kind of like that. That's okay. But I always have to remind people, I am the original. <laughs> In Romans 16, 13, Paul writes these words, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. So evidently, Simon's wife became a mother figure in the life of the apostle Paul, and Rufus... Rufus was a highly valued co-worker of Paul's. They would have been approximately the same age. Warren Wiersbe writes in his commentary, It seems likely that the humiliating experience of helping Jesus carry the cross resulted in Simon's conversion, as well as the conversion of his wife and sons. Simon came to Jerusalem to sacrifice a Passover lamb, and he met 
the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for him. And even today, I think like Simon, people can get drafted into an encounter with Jesus. The convicts in that Brazilian prison, they they had to go to chapel. They had to have an accountability partner. They had to take a Bible class on character development. They had to make restitution for their crime. They didn't have a choice. Of course, we, in our politically correct judicial system and penal system, would never bind anything like that on a prisoner. Let the record show, it brought out the best in these Brazilian inmates. Pastor Tony Evans said that he had a really big drug problem as a teenager. He was drugged to church on Sunday morning. He was drugged to church on Sunday night. He was drugged to midweek prayer meeting. But it made him a good man. I didn't have a choice growing up. I had to go to church every time the doors were open. can't tell you how many times I missed getting to see the Wizard of Oz while I was growing up on Sunday night. I had to pray every day with my family. didn't have a choice about that. But over time, something happened in me. It's like the guy who said to a pastor, Ah! I got a belly full of religion when I was a kid. And the pastor asked him, well, did you get any of it in your head and in your heart? One of our Crossroads guys became a Christian a few years ago, put the heat on his wife and kids to start coming to church with him, and they did, but very reluctantly at first, and they started out sitting back in the cry room But week after week, they got closer and closer, and you should hear the testimony of what Jesus has done for that family. (laughs) My wife will probably shoot me for telling you this, but when she was a junior in high school, there was an All-American type, a basketball star, a senior at Quincy High School, the son of the president of the company for which her father worked. And he wanted to date Kayleen. Kayleen told him she would only go out with him if he went to church with her. (laughs) Unfortunately, I kind of disrupted her evangelistic dating strategy. (laughs) I've got a retired pastor friend named Doug McAllister. When, When he was dating his wife, Debbie... One day she wrote him a Dear John letter saying that while she was attracted to him, she had vowed that she would never marry anyone who was not a Christian, so she was ending their relationship. Well, Doug got interested in Christianity real fast. (laughs) And as he grew, he was thoroughly converted, married Debbie, went to Christian college, became a pastor, and today has two sons who are both pastors. Maybe you were invited to play on a church ball team and one of the requirements was church attendance. Or maybe a friend was giving you a ride and he or she put in a sermon tape while you were riding along. Or maybe you were flat on your back in the hospital and a Christian friend witnessed to you about the Lord. Like Simon, you felt conscripted. You felt drafted. Maybe you're here today because of pressure from a grandparent or a parent or your spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or because 
Your probation requires that you attend church and submit a form signed by a pastor. Listen. Maybe you'll be like Simon. Maybe you'll be like Simon who took up the cross because he was pressured to. And he freely chose never to put it down. Well, another person who was changed by the cross was the Roman centurion. And he was changed from a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. Now, this centurion was responsible for the oversight of the execution. He commanded the soldiers who brutalized Jesus. So the spitting and the mocking and the punching and the scourging, he let it go on. It was standard procedure for him. But watching the way Jesus endured it all impressed him. Here was a man of rare strength and composure. Here was a man of dignity and peace, even in his suffering. This centurion noticed it when Pilate said, I find no fault in him. This centurion had heard cursing from condemned men, but never blessing in, never blessing in the form of a plea for God to forgive them and he had never seen the sky as black as midnight in the middle of the day. And that earthquake, it was all too eerie to be coincidental. The centurion had never overheard such a sincere prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Never had he seen a dying man with his dying breath shout out in triumph, it is finished. And in that moment, that violence-hardened centurion became a believer. He confessed it out loud. Surely, this man was the Son of God. You know, actually, this transformation from hostile skeptic to humble believer is a fairly common one. Saul of Tarsus breathed out threats against Christians. He considered Jesus an imposter, but he was confronted by the risen Christ on the Damascus road, and he became a humble believer, and he would later write in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And the list is too long for our limited time here this morning, but hundreds of well-knowns and hundreds of thousands of unknowns have started out as skeptics and have studied themselves into becoming believers. Former atheists who are now defenders of the faith include C.S. Lewis, the author of Mere Christianity, brilliant university professor, Bill Murray, the son of Madeline Murray, atheist Madeline Murray. Josh McDowell started out an unbeliever, then authored evidence that demands a verdict and has an international Christian ministry. Lee Strobel, his wife became a Christian. After they were married, he said, I didn't sign up for this, and he set about to undermine his wife's newfound faith, and in the process, he became a Christian and wrote The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator, The Case for Christ, and is now himself a pastor. Dr. Philip Johnson is a graduate of Harvard, the law school at the University of Chicago, and a professor of law at UC Berkeley. He called himself a nominal agnostic, but after honest and thorough research, 
He became a creationist. He affirmed the integrity of Scripture, and he wrote the bestseller, Darwin on Trial. Listen, if you are a skeptic by nature, that's not a bad thing. But be intellectually honest enough to see the cross through the eyes of this centurion, a face in the crowd at the crucifixion, a hostile skeptic who became a humble believer. Let the cross change your mind and change your life. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12 says, Does it mean nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see if there is any suffering like mine, which the Lord brought on me when he, he erupted in fierce anger. Now, although this passage was not written about the crucifixion, the words are descriptive of what I think Jesus may ask each one of us in a moment of truth. Does it mean nothing to you, all you who pass by, that on the cross I felt your pain, that on the cross I took your punishment, that on the cross I experienced your suffering, that on the cross I absorbed the fierce anger of the Heavenly Father against sin, so that you would never have to? That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's grace. Well, finally... Let me bundle together these last two from the crowd who were changed by the cross because they're similar. I want you to see the cross through the eyes of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were changed from secret admirers to bold witnesses. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 38, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, both of these men were members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the day. They were two of a group of 70. And these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were respected, they were well-to-do, and they were influential. And both of them had been impressed with Jesus and his ministry, but at a distance, because their peers had a condescending attitude toward the Lord. So Joseph and Nicodemus kept their admiration of Jesus secret. When the Sanhedrin met to plot Jesus' death, Nicodemus was there in the assembly, and he was timid about speaking up. Finally, he asked this question, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Instead of standing up and saying, wait a minute, boys, I want you to know that I believe in Jesus. He is the Messiah. Instead of doing that, Nicodemus raised a procedural question. Why don't we consider both sides here, fellas? Nicodemus straddled the fence. He visited Jesus, but only after dark. Later, after Jesus courageously died, it was the cross 
that brought out the boldness in both men. They realized they had waited too long. They had been cowards, and it was time to make their loyalty public. So Mark writes that Joseph went boldly and asked for Jesus' body. Now, there was considerable risk in him doing that. It would have been common knowledge in the community who retrieved the body and who prepared the body for burial, and then for Joseph to put Jesus in his own personal mausoleum. That's what I call a a bold statement of his devotion, a bold statement of his loyalty to Jesus. So both men together took the body of Jesus, they wrapped it in spices and linen cloths, and they buried him. This wouldn't have been a pleasant task, especially for two sophisticated, well-to-do men. These, These guys were not used to doing such a gory job, but Jesus mattered more to them than their dignity And for them to touch a dead body meant that they were ceremonially unclean, not eligible to eat the Passover or associate with their loved ones the next day. But giving priority to Jesus mattered more than their religious rituals or even their families. This was a costly proposition. The grave was expensive, as was 75 pounds of spices and linen burial cloths, but Jesus was more important than their money. So, when they saw the courage of Jesus dying publicly, unashamedly on the cross, it created boldness in them. And just a few days later, disciples Peter and John were preaching Christ in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 when they were rounded up and they were warned not to speak any more about Him publicly. They were released, and he went right back out and continued to do it. And so they were rounded up again. This time they were beaten, and they were ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for Jesus' name. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I tell you, the cross transforms us from being secret admirers and inspires us to be bold witnesses for Him. Courage to witness for Jesus, it's not the absence of fear. Courage is action in spite of fear. Seneca put it this way, It is not because things are difficult that we do not dare to do them. It's because we do not dare to do them that things are difficult. Will you stand with me? Today the invitation is clear, friends. Where the cross is concerned, don't be a bystander. Step out. Step away from the crowd. Let the cross do its life-changing work in your head, in your heart. Like Simon, be changed from a casual observer to a devoted follower. Like the centurion, be changed from a hostile skeptic to a humble believer. And like Joseph and Nicodemus, be changed from a secret admirer to a bold witness. It all depends on us having a moment of truth. So let's pray and let's focus 
on the power of the cross. In these moments, our Father, we thank you that the symbol on planet Earth that commands the most humility, the most respect, the most awe is the cross of Christ. Build that cross into our heart of hearts here this morning. We pray, Father, let us be conscious of it every waking day. What it means, it stands as the symbol of your love and grace extended to us through Jesus our Lord. We pray, Lord, that just like these people we've looked at this morning who stepped out of the crowd and embraced the cross, that every one of us will have such a moment of, of truth and will respond by offering up our lives and our futures, our destinies to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.